The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, deepen your knowledge, and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's guest is the Cambridge historian Professor Robert Toombs, who joined me to discuss his new book, This Sovereign Isle. The book looks at the history of Britain's relationship with Europe to put Brexit in its historical context. I spoke to Robert for the book's interview in the January issue of BBC History magazine. So your new book looks at Brexit, but from the perspective of a longer history of relationships between Britain and Europe. What made you want to write this book or or perhaps made you feel like it was necessary to do so? Our ideas about Europe, our relationship with Europe, the the difficulties of our relationship with Europe, um, the whole European project itself and the way people all over Europe respond to it is essentially based on an understanding of the past and hence of the present and hence expectations about the future. So although in theory, indeed, it's been done, you know, you could write a book about Brexit and uh, endless books about the EU, which analyse them as political structures, as economic systems and so on. I think you only really understand it, well, fully, or at least there's a whole dimension of it that can only be understood as um, a reflection on, on the past. 
Yeah. One of the central tenets of your book is, of course, that if you look at the past, then Brexit does become what you you call um, historically explicable. How so? Uh, Historically explicable. I don't believe it's historically determined. I mean, on, on both sides of the argument, our argument, and also in generally in discussions about the EU and its future, it's very common to have this this belief that there is a kind of preset direction that history is going in. I mean, we, we're very, we tend to like that kind of thing. We tend to be prone to that kind of thinking. Uh, this is not the first time by any means. So that, you know, you have to accept certain things because history dictates them. So history dictates that we are a European country, or history dictates that we are not a European country, or history, you know, and it just seems to me that that is, 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 is wrong and, and is, is damaging, because I think that we have to be, we have to be clear that we make our own decisions about the politics of today, and that they're not predetermined by history, though they may be explained by history in the sense that the way we think is historically, uh, is based on on certain ideas about the past. But so I suppose my, I mean, my argument really is, yes, history helps us to understand where we are, but it doesn't tell us where we have to go from here. Perhaps above all, it helps us to understand why we think about things in the way we do, and why different people have different ideas. Uh, when Brexit dominated the news agenda, we saw countless politicians and media figures putting forward all kinds of historical parallels, um, you know, from the break with Rome to Britain standing alone in World War II. Some of these were, you know, clutching at straws more than others. But do you think that any of these parallels are useful in getting to grips with the Brexit debate? Or do you think they're inevitably always a bit hackneyed? I think when, when politicians or generally when commentators look for historical analogies or historical examples it's almost always for rhetorical purposes in other words it's a you know it's a form of metaphor it's not it's very rarely analytical i mean i think one could almost say it's never analytical um i mean i i tried to be analytical in my first chapter uh but the conclusion i come to is that um our past has has meant that our relationship with europe is very fluid you know, it, and, and we, we could obviously have chosen to remain in the EU, and we almost did. Um, but um, I don't believe, uh, and I don't think history tells us that certain things are necessarily, necessary, you know, that our choices are constrained by, by our history. Not in any useful way, anyway. Why do you think that people are so desperate to enlist history onto their side almost in debates such as this? Why why does it matter if Brexit is historically explicable or if it isn't? Well, I guess that we all like um whether we're, you know, whether we're generally interested in history or professionally involved in it or if we're just people who occasionally think about the past we we like to we like to think that there is some sort of meaning in what we do i mean we obviously we don't like to think that th- that things are entirely arbitrary and matters of chance we like to think that there is some sort of sense and although I, what, what i said earlier suggests that i think this is often misleading uh, and therefore it, en- it enables people to make certain arguments because none of it's provable really um that i think um we at least 
we at least crave for some sense of direction and some sense of certainty. And I, and I guess that historians probably often um, are there to say um, it wasn't really like that, or it's not, it's not really like that, or what you're saying is not quite true. I mean, we're, in often, we're often pretty annoying and boring people in that we're always, you know, usually pointing out the exceptions and that the details are not quite as you as you think, and therefore the great stories that people really hang on to, and which do give us a sense of belonging, a sense of meaning. You know, professional historians are often saying, "Well, it wasn't really like that," um, and that sometimes is a good thing, but it sometimes may may leave people feeling just disoriented, confused, disillusioned, and so on. So what do you think are some of those things that we've got wrong about the history of Britain's relationship with Europe? Well, I think, okay, this probably sounds terribly arrogant, but I think both sides are in a sense equally wrong. Okay, I'm I'm simplifying or caricaturing a bit. But there is, as you said, the, let's say, the pro-EU view that says, well, the unification of Europe is inevitable, it's, you know, it's part of the, the tide of history. It's going to happen. And we, therefore, made the terrible mistake of being left out. And we must never be left out again. You know, we've heard that over and over again. And we have to be part of this because otherwise we'll be marginalised, isolated, and all that. Um, so I think, I think that's wrong, well, as I've said, because the future of Europe is unpredictable. We don't know what the future of the EU will be. Um, but there's no reason to think that... Um, it's going to continue in the future as it has in the past. Um, uh, It may may not succeed. It may break up. It may may hit all sorts of crises, etc., etc. So the idea that we're going to be, as it were, browbeaten into accepting a certain political relationship because people tell us that that's how things are and we have to, it just seems to me to be wrong. On the other hand, the people kind of on my side of the argument who say, well, Britain has always been separate, we stood alone, we, um, our, our political system, our legal system is so different that we could never have been part of the EU, seem to me, again, also to be, um, to be oversimplifying. Because the obvious fact is that we, we were for 50 years, uh, and we almost remained in, um, in the EU. And had we voted the other way, which we could easily have done in, in 2016, then that might, in fact, have been our future decided for, you know, for the foreseeable future. We, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be having another referendum. Uh, unless the EU somehow broke up in chaos, we would be members of the EU indefinitely. And that would have been setting us on a quite different path from the one we've chosen. So I think, you know, 2016 did enable us to have a, a, cho- a real choice. And, and people who say that, that choice, that only one side of the choice was legitimate, seems to me a wrong. Both choices were, you know, were, were, were rational, had good arguments for them, but in neither case did they dictate the only sensible thing to do. If we're looking at that um, relationship between Britain and Europe, Britain's history is not the same as a, as a continental Um, European countries because of geography, you point out. How do you think that geography has shaped the relationship between Britain and Europe over time? Well, I think in a way that everyone would recognise, and I'm not claiming to say anything original or or profound here, um, I think I start off the book by saying Ireland's 
can't have the same history as continental plains. You know, if you're if you're Poland or or Czechos or the Czech Republic, you are bound to have a different relationship with the continent than if you're a peripheral island, which we are. So I think, in a way, you know, you if you, if you're a pole, as as the poles know very well, you have a particular geopolitical reality that you always have to take into account. On one side you have Germany, on the other side you have Russia, and that's where you are. I mean, we're we are um, uh, not entirely free of that kind of constraint, but we are clearly much less, and have been throughout our history, much less involved in. Um, let's say, the, 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 geo, the, the sort of very hard facts of, of continental politics than, than have countries which are I- I- inherently part of that landmass. And then, but I mean, that's not that's obvious. So we're an island, therefore it's, it's, we're, we're a bit different. Something that you raise in the book that's really interesting is about how the story of Britain and Europe can't really be viewed in isolation. It's inevitably shaped by and responsible for shaping events much further afield. Um, I'm thinking particularly, uh, for example, in terms of uh, imperialism. Where does the story of empire fit into this European story? Uh, well, I, I guess there are two ways. I mean, okay, so a preliminary comment would be that Britain is by no means the only or perhaps even the most imperial of the European states, the European countries. I mean, I would say that the the empire has left a legacy which is somewhat more important for us, um, partly because of the of the 20th century, the history of the 20th century, the history of two world wars, in which major allies were the empire, the Commonwealth, the Americans. And, you know, if there's one thing that we all, we all know, it's that our, our survival in two world wars was largely owing to overseas alliances, um, in a way that is not true for any other, in it, of any other European country. Um, and um, also, of course, those those alliances, to some extent, still exist, or indeed, I don't know, I say to some extent, are still crucial for our security, um, and hence are at various levels, economic, military, um, and cultural, our links outside Europe, I would say, are more important than those of any other European state. I mean, one one. One consequence of that, which is well, pretty well known, I think, is that Britain, although a member of the EEC, then the EU, for, for nearly 50 years, um, has, has never been as integrated economically as its other member countries. Um, I th- people always say, well, except for Malta. So, you know, you could put in brackets, except for Malta. But of the larger countries, we are far less integrated into the European economic system than any other, uh, and so uh, obviously one one consequence of that, which which I argue in the book is crucial, is that we didn't join the eurozone. We were not the only country, but we were the only of one of the large European countries that was not part of the eurozone. And one of my arguments in the book is that had we joined the eurozone, which we nearly did and could have done, if Tony Blair had had his way, then we would not have left the EU. We would not have voted in 2016 to leave because the dangers of leaving the Eurozone are much greater. And hence, whatever you say about, you know, 
our long-term history, thousands of years of history, the empire, etc., etc., had we been in the Eurozone, I think we would still be members of the EU. Mm-hmm. Just to very quickly pick up on your, that point about empire, in that you see our imperial ties as, as you know, being more long-lasting and meaningful, why do you not see that as being the case with, say, France, Spain, Portugal, etc.? Well, the, the, uh, the Portuguese... Well, the Spanish Empire largely ended, for most of it, in the early part of the 19th century, so much longer ago. And although there are clearly important cultural ties between Spain and South America, um, I, I don't think they're as important as, as our ties now are with the United States, let's say, uh, either economically or in terms of security. Um, and um, as far as France is concerned, well, the French do make big efforts to maintain in post-imperial links. I think they make probably more of an effort to do so than we do. Um, but nevertheless, the French Empire did break up in very um, traumatic circumstances. And um, th- their relationship now with what were the most imp- their most important colonies, which were Algeria, Morocco, uh, Vietnam, are very much less important to them than our are our relationships with, let's say, well, the United States, Canada, Australia. Um, to turn the last question really on its head a bit and take a more insular view, how have how has the relationship with Europe over history shaped relationships between nations within the United Kingdom? Ah, and still does, as we know with Scot- with Scotland now. Okay, well, I think you could say there is a sort of constant, which is that for Scotland and Ireland, and and sometimes Wales, um, relations with Europe, with continental states, were a way of resisting or opposing the, the power of England. After all, England, from the very dawn of the existence of the, of of, our, of the British nations, was always the was always the largest, was always the largest and the most powerful. So, for the Scots, the Irish, and the Welsh to keep the English at bay or to get rid of them um, was usually something that you felt that you could do with uh, with the help of your continental friends. I mean, the obvious, the old alliance between Scotland and France is the most famous example of that. And also at the same time, continental enemies of England or later of Britain, of course, were very eager to use um, the other British nations as uh, as allies, so the French and the Scots, the French and the Irish later during the Revolutionary Wars, the Napoleonic Wars, uh, the Germans and the Irish during the First World War. Um, uh, so the, the, the so that's been always a complicating factor in in the in the in the relationships between Britain. On the other hand, you, you probably know this famous book by um, Linda Colley called Britons. Um, when, when, if we had a common European enemy, whether it was France or later Germany, then that was obviously something that tended to make the ties between the British nations closer. So they, they tended either, I mean, depending on the circumstances, they could either bring us together or split us apart. And it's very clear now that the, the whole Brexit issue, of course, has given a great boost in one way to Scottish nationalism, or at least to Scottish desires for um, for independence. Whether it's actually made it more difficult, as I would think, is, is another matter. 
still to come on the History Extra podcast. And I think it, the tendency was to see Britain as being strange, odd, um, a place, you know, eccentric. That's a that's a big European cliche about the about the British that we're eccentric, and th- and that really means that there are things that we do that they don't really understand. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. So obviously we're all very aware of the key topics which dominated the debate um, about around Brexit. But what have some of the concerns about a closer or more distant relationship with Europe been um, further back historically? Well, um, I was thinking about this the other day, and I, I think there are, there, are, there are six periods in which we've had close relationships with, with the continent. Uh, one with the Roman Empire, one with Scandinavia, fairly short, uh, one with France, very long, uh, 400 years or so um, uh, one with well actually there are more than that one with, 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 with Holland after the Glorious Revolution one with Germany after the Hanoverian succession and then the sixth is that five then the sixth of course is, is, has been with the EU so if we've, we've had this is part this is my argument in chapter one we've had very shifting relations with different parts of Europe. And I suggest that it's quite difficult to say with which part of Europe we have the closest affinity. You know, are we really a bit of Scandinavia, offshore Scandinavia? Are we very much like France? Are we, in fact, a, really a Germanic culture, etc., etc.? I mean, I think f- for that reason, it's um, we've tended to have very... Um, I can't remember if I... I don't think I use the word promiscuous, but we've had quite... Um, loose and changing relationships with Europe for most of our history, in which we've we've gone through a succession of um, of of close connections, but never one, never a single one. 
and it seemed to me the norm that that's that's really been the norm um and the the exception has been um at least since the since the 16th century uh it's been very exceptional for us to consider a permanent i mean when i say us you know a shorthand term to consider um a sort of permanent organic tie with a with a confed with the EU as a confederation. Um, I think the last time, well, I mean there have been various suggestions of un- union with France, but n- never very um, never very credible uh, with Holland, occasion etc. But so I think you know we've we've had a lot of changing relationships, and that's I think probably what an island, a close island, probably naturally has. So as you say, um, as you made a very, the very good point earlier, we can't ever predict the future. And I know that historians are always aware of this. But with what you said, just said in mind, do you think that then we'll be able to see this Brexit era, Brexit ages, if you like to call it, as just another chapter that we see there? I hope so. Um, I, hope, I hope in a generation people will have largely forgotten it. And we'll wonder why we made so much fuss about it. We we tend to remember things, which we we tend to remember disasters. We remember wars. We remember we remember when lots of people get killed. But there are lots of very important things in our history which, at the time, seemed absolutely epoch-making, and which now most people have completely forgotten. Well, largely. I mean, the separation of Ireland from the United Kingdom. Um, I wonder how many people who are not historians even realise that Ireland was once part of the United Kingdom or know when it became independent or what the circumstances were. But, you know, from the 1880s to the 1920s, this was the dominating theme practically of English, British politics. Um, And yet it now seems absolutely the most natural thing in the world that Ireland is an independent country. Um, And I guess it's something that has just seems at most a, a small blip in our in our history um, and you know there are a lot one could think of other examples you know the the debate over the corn laws in the 1840s which remake our politics um, how many people know anything about that or think it's important uh, and I, th- I so I rather hope that in 20 years time people will think you know oh yes um, once we were part of the EU and uh, then we decided not to be um, what was all the fuss about? Throughout, obviously, most of the Brexit debate, we were focused on what British people think about Europe. But I did just want to ask you from a historical perspective about what continental Europe has thought about Britain over the ages. (laughs) Lots of different things. Um, And here you're asking me for a heroic (laughs) generalisation. Yes. Uh, I'm aware that might not be possible. (laughs) Well, I mean, I, I think probably as somewhat strange. I mean, there, were, there was a there was a belief in the Middle Ages that it, that the English had had tails. Um, I, th- I mean, I know most about French and British relations, and I think it, the tendency was to see Britain as being strange, odd, um, a place, you know, eccentric. That's a that's a big European cliche about the about the British that we're eccentric. And, th- and that really means that there are things that we do that they don't really understand or think are, are, are bizarre. Uh, often novelties come from Britain. Uh, Britain often seen as um, 
sometimes as an enemy. I think I think many people in France, even those who quite like us or coming here, nevertheless think of Britain as a, a sort of hereditary enemy. Um, I think, oh gosh, um, I mean, I think it's huge. It's obviously changed a great deal. I mean, I think um, um, during the Middle Ages, it was Britain was a, a pretty wild and woolly, if rich, country on the edge of civilization. In the early modern period, it was the defender of Protestantism. Uh, in the twentieth century, too, of course, for many people, it was one of the the defenders of European freedom against totalitarianism. Uh, now, I think um, there is a. Uh, I saw a very interesting op opinion poll, which asked people in different countries which countries they would be willing to help in case of crisis, and the British said they would be willing to help everybody in Europe. Uh, and nearly all European countries said they wouldn't be willing to help Britain. So I think that Brexit and the way it's been reported has certainly had quite an impact on, on the way that the Europeans think of us. I think incomprehension, for some a sense of betrayal, for a minority a sense that we're doing the right thing and showing the way. Uh, but I think on the whole a, a feeling of, uh, of not understanding um, the, the, why are the British doing this? Um, uh, and uh, either they're doing it for for reasons that sorry, I'm now I'm, I'm rambling. You know, either there's some terrible there's some British plot. Uh, there's a, a French newspaper a week or so ago said something like, um, "How can we understand the dark designs of perfidious Albion?" Uh, and others just think we've gone crazy. So I I, th I think in a way that has not been often the case in the past. But I think it's often been the case that, that the British have been perceived to be different and unpredictable. I feel, so my next question, I feel like every single conversation about um, 20th century history comes back to World War II, sadly, sometimes. And that might possibly be, you know, our, our national obsession. But how do you think that World War II reshaped conceptions of Europe and Britain's role within it? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, and I think the answer is more complicated than, than one would think. Well, I would say it's clear that, uh, and I think everyone would probably agree with this, that Britain's very different experience of the 20th century, and particularly of the period of the Second World War, means that we have a somewhat different attitude towards the EU as a, as a project. Because if you think of the EU as being the way you prevent another war, or the way you, you prevent Europe from falling into dictatorship or, or something like that, then I think that's not something that we, we see so vividly, as if you're French or German. Um, so I think it means that, well, as I, as I think I may say in the book, I, the 20th century is simply less traumatic for us and therefore, in some senses, it marks us less. I mean, I, I've, I've always sceptical about this idea that it's our national obsession that every other country has forgotten it. I think, I think it's a bit of an obsession for all all the all the European countries, or at least all the countries that were involved in the war. Um, uh, and um, in some ways, it's more of an obsession for us. For us, it's a sort of rather it's a sort of exciting story and a bit of a, a myth. But if you're German or French 
or Polish. It's a lot more serious than that. Um, you only have to look at things, literature and, and the cinema and the way that, that most continental countries have in recent years made really major films about the Second World War, um, asking very serious questions about it in a way that we, we really haven't. For us, it's kind of costume drama. I mean, in the immediate post-war period, British governments were very keen on European integration of, of some sort because they were afraid, as most people were, of a Russian takeover or of a German revival or of just some sort of, a sort of chaos in Europe. And I don't think the, the idea that many people now have that, that we, had, we always had this idea of being very separate doesn't, wasn't really true. I mean, it was the British that took the lead in, in, in creating the Council of Europe, the Western European Union, um, the European Convention of Human Rights, all these sorts of things were, were British initiatives largely. Um, um, so, so, I mean, what many people have asked is, is, is what went wrong. And I think the difference was that um, British governments, both Labour and Conservative, were very reluctant to give up... Um, well, OK, to give up sovereignty or to give up political control in a way that some European countries were willing to do, partly because they'd, they'd suffered so much or they were already so weakened that it didn't seem to them a great loss. I think for us it did. And then, you know, you, you also have the question that we, we, were, we were talking about before. Britain also had very important connections outside Europe. And if it seemed that you'd got, you were going to have to choose between being fully in a European system or co continuing with ties outside Europe, well, to put it mildly, it was a very difficult choice for Britain to make. And perhaps we never really made it. So if, if we're thinking about the, the swinging scale of global power and Britain's role um, within that, how do you think that Britain's role on the world stage as a whole has been altered affected, shaped, or not, not changed at all by the Brexit decision? No, it's, it's a good question, and I think the answer is uncertain. I mean, I think... Um, um, I think, certainly, the whole Brexit debate has been a huge... Uh, you know, as you said, has been an obsession uh, to the exclusion of all other things. And I think it's probably meant that we haven't had much of a, a foreign policy or a world policy apart from coping with Brexit and trying to sign trade deals with other countries. Um, so I don't, I think that there's, I mean, there was a House of Commons report, uh, was it a week or so ago, I think, which said that Britain had been pretty absent from the international stage for the last few years. And that seems to me to be, to be true. Um, whether that will continue, I, I don't know. I rather hope not. But then it means we have to choose a different strategy. Um, and uh, I think probably it will mean a greater, um, a, a cl closer ties with the, with the Anglosphere countries rather than with the EU countries. That's pretty obvious. So you have a chapter that looks at the, the way that the COVID pandemic is, is playing out. Why did you think that that was an interesting lens to look at this relationship between Britain and Europe through? Uh, well, it was partly unavoidable, unless I'd sort of stopped the book in January uh, 2020, which, I, which was, would have been possible. You know, we, let, we, we formally left, 
But clearly that wasn't the end of anything. And I, it made me think of Marx, which, which I think I use as an epigraph when he says people choose their, their history, but they don't choose the circumstances. And it seemed to me that what appeared to be, you know, we'd be negotiating our exit, we'd be um, coming up with a trade deal, etc., etc. And then all of a sudden the COVID crisis happens and has obviously a huge impact on on the world, as you, as I think you you said a few minutes ago. First of all, Brexit then goes into the onto the onto sort of page three of all the newspapers. In in that there, are, everybody's far more interested in COVID. All, all the the sort of divisions of Brexit seemed for a time to have disappeared. So that's one thing. It some, somehow Brexit seemed to be old history all of a sudden. Uh, and uh, but the other thing is that clearly COVID is. Um, is a huge test for every every society that's been hit by it, uh, and it shows up their weaknesses. And I think it clearly, I think I think it's bound to be seen as the first test of post-Brexit Britain, but also perhaps even more, uh, it's it's another terrible challenge to the the cohesion of the of the EU and the and the stability of the eurozone. So I thought it, you know, I I just had to talk about it talk about that so although the, the, you know there's a there's a bit about um, the disease because we've all become epidemiologists over the last few months uh, it's really more there's much more about the, how it affects the negotiations between with the EU and also how it affects um, the, the euros the eurozone as a, as a financial system you obviously have had the luxury of looking back at at this the history of this relationship and having been able to do so what would you how would you like to contribute to or amend the discussion around brexit at okay. the moment yes um well i don't know who's going to read this book or how many but what i would what i would like ideally i think would be if um, if people who vote however people voted if they could see that the the vote had was was a, was reasonable, that um, th- that it was not um, a completely crazy decision, and indeed, as as I as I argue, as you will have seen, that in fact British attitudes to the EU are very little different from those in Europe as a whole. Um, the differences of circumstance, not of not of culture or attitude, um, and therefore we're not seeing some crazy explosion of of racist populism, um, unless you're seeing it all over Europe, which I don't think you really are. Um, and so so perhaps the people who voted to leave will think, well, okay, there were reasons, perhaps I was right, <laughs> and, and people who voted remain would, I hope, say, well, okay, maybe it wasn't such a crazy decision as I thought, and maybe things are not so bad, and maybe there are th- there's, there's a way in which we can... Uh, find things that we agree about. I feel like the way that a lot of people in Britain experienced or viewed the Brexit debate was as something very combative. And as you say, there was a lot of vitriol on both sides, which has, I think, you know, coloured people's attitudes towards the topic, either on, on both sides, either way. And so I'm just intrigued as to what you think, say, future historians who who didn't live through that, who didn't experience it, um, who possibly have a more neutral approach to it in the future might reflect on or on all of that and the way it unfolded. 
Well, I guess, I mean, when, when you, as you know, when you look back at a distance, you tend to overlook the details and look at the, the, the big picture. So probably a lot of the political debate will be forgotten. You know, in, in, in 30 years' time, will John Burko still be a household name? Um, but I think they will see it as part of an international trend, uh, which, is of, uh, which, of, which is critical of, or at least increasingly hesitant about, globalization and neoliberalism and the institutions that, that embody that, of which the EU is one. Um, and uh, and will probably see it as many people now see it as showing a, a conflict between um, uh, you know a new a sort of new international middle class which has done very well out of globalization and um, okay a, a majority of less well-off less successful people who cling to the idea of the nation state as 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 the thing that can protect them can defend their interests so I think in a way what would what will decide who was right in the long run or how future historians might see who was right in the long run will be whether this gamble on the nation state or on a democratic nation state was a successful gamble because I think that's what Brexit really was or whether you could say well that that's an outdated concept we now live in a globalized world we can only exist as part of a large block um, and I think it, it, that's how it will be decided and so th the future will decide whether the EU I mean in some in some senses we'll be judged or our generation will be judged on things that are entirely, entirely beyond our control we, we don't know how the world will develop we don't know whether the EU will still be around in 20 years or in what form it will be but we're all having to make guesses to some extent based to get back to our starting point, to some extent based on our understanding of the past and what makes us feel that certain things are more likely or more trustworthy or um, and um, which of us is right depends very much on things that will happen in future which we have no control over or very little control over now. That was Robert Toombs. His book, This Sovereign Isle, Britain in and out of Europe is on sale from the 28th of January from Alan Lane and it's available to pre-order now. You can read a version of this interview in the January issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes features on the murder of Thomas Beckett, Bonnie Prince Charlie, the history of vaccines and plenty more. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow when Ian Kershaw will be giving a lecture on post-war Europe.